Welcome to Season 3 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. You are listening to Part 2 with Dr. Gabriel Ben-Wilner, Chief Medical Officer at Palmetto GBA and Director of the MOLDX program. In this segment, we continue the conversation on the growing difficulties that payers face in navigating the explosion of precision medicine and related diagnostic tests and treatments. And in the second half, we discuss solutions for improving processes and adapting to this paradigm shift in the practice of medicine. There are, I would say, several other, probably even bigger problems um, that resulted in the creation of this program. Uh, one is that um, payers communicate with providers by in understanding what services were rendered and why they should be paid for um, based on the claim submission process. And so what happens is a provider does some service and then they bill Medicare for that service by telling them what service was performed, and that's usually uh, in, in laboratory settings uh, by using a CPT code. CPT codes are created by the AMA, um, and they also use an ICD-10 code, which is uh, a descriptor of a, a general code set that describes conditions. Um, it's not really a diagnostic code set, but more or less could be seen that way. And so that's how you communicate with the payer what you did and why you did it. And for many services, that, that's sufficient. Um, but in molecular diagnostics, it really doesn't work well. If you look at the CPT code set, the CPT code set doesn't explain a specific test um, often or, or, or a specific test for a specific intended use. Sometimes the CPT code defines a gene. Sometimes it just defines a procedure that was performed. Sometimes the CPT code defines one of maybe 50 different genes. doesn't matter which one. And so if the payer wants to understand what service was rendered, CPT codes are often a very poor way of doing that. So that's, and so it's very easy for the payer to say, I don't understand why this test was done. And then they just don't pay for it. Another major reason um, is that unlike other even even other uh, laboratory tests, um, molecular diagnostics is very heavy um, in laboratory developed tests. A laboratory developed test is one where the the, the lab itself is creating its own assay. Um, now, um, using utilizing their, the the physicians who are running these laboratories' um, ability to practice medicine, this is totally appropriate that they create their own tests that are necessary for their own patient population. But because that because there's not general standardized um, procedures or equipment or, or chemicals that are used in these tests, two different labs performing the same CPT-coded test may be performing two entirely different tests for two entirely different intended uses. Mm. Um, furthermore, um, because um, some of these tests are very highly complex, um, it's not clear to the payer if the test is even being performed to whatever standards are necessary to ensure that the test is reasonable and necessary. So um, 
yes, there is CLIA, yes, there is CAP, but those operate at the lab level, not on the specific assay level a majority of the time. And because these tests be, are, be, have become so complicated, um, <clears throat> the payer wants to ensure that whatever they're paying for is, it has been validated and, and is being used properly. So these are all considerations that, that maybe aren't relevant in other areas of medicine or even other laboratory tests. If all NGS tests, for example, were, were FDA-approved kits, that last thing I mentioned um, may not be relevant, but that's not how most of these services are rendered. And I would argue that it, that's probably a good thing, um, but it still means that the payer has one more challenge to try to overcome before deciding whether they should be covering a test and, and, and how much it should be paid for. Yeah. You've mentioned before that payers, alluding to the, the codes that that might not be adequate in the communication process, but payers need more specificity on what was done and why. Like, if we can put that in the context of, of how to communicate that to payers, what would be the best situation um, come up with another code, or is there other information that needs to be submitted with a claim? How do we how do we address that to make that process more clear and streamlined for our payers? Yeah, that's a great question, and this is something that that really what I think the the one thing that made Moldex work from the beginning um, is that they sort of solved that problem. And what and this is before I got here, so I really can't take any credit for this. Um, um, is they realized that they could create a, a second code set and require um, providers to um, to put this code, which they call Z code, on the claim. And so what a Z code is, is a unique identifier for each and every test. So if, if you have an NGS test that's a 5 to 50 gene panel for breast cancer at lab X, and you have a 5 to 50 gene test that's for colorectal cancer um, in lab Y, those would both be billed with the same CPT code, 81445, but the payer do doesn't know um, the difference. And now they've got two different patients. One has breast cancer, one has colon cancer. And without this kind of specificity with the coding, the payer is gonna be confused. Uh, why is a patient with uh, breast cancer getting the same test as a patient with colon cancer? They, you know, um, so th th they would be confused every time. And that's why you have things like um, pre-authorization that, that, that sort of come up as a, as a remedy for that, where they would have to look at a lot of information to figure out, uh, a payer would have to figure out in advance, hey, this is actually a different test. This is why it was ordered. And then sort of approve it. Whereas what Moldex has done is we created this code set. And the way it works is if you have a new test, and it's a molecular diagnostic test, you go to the, the DEX website. DEX is a program that we actually operate now. And you register your test. You tell us what's in that test, what genes you're sequencing for, or assuming it's a sequencing test. Um, you give us a lot of information about the methodologies, the intended uses. And then when you submit that, we give you a unique Z code. So now when you are performing a test, and um, it's a it's a five to fifty gene uh, sequencing test for breast cancer, and you submit the Z code. We know exactly what you test what what test you performed, 
And given the ICD-10 code, we know exactly why you performed it. And so we don't need to do pre-authorizations. We, we already know, we've met, we've already been able to, to delineate that it's, it's the proper test um, for that patient. Yeah. You mentioned the prior authorization kind of being the, the process that's in play there. And obviously from the provider side, that is kind of another, you know, big hurdle that they have to jump to, you know, make treatment decisions. How big of an administrative or financial obstacle is prior authorization for payers? So um, the Medicare program in, in Moldex program does not use pre-authorization. So it's none from our perspective. There are, I believe, some initiatives in Medicare in general that, that have attempted this or are attempting it. But in general, Medicare doesn't do that. Medicare, if you submit a proper claim, it pays within 15 days. And a lot of our reviews are post-pay reviews, meaning that if, if you improperly billed or were given improper payment, we'll tell you often after the fact, our efforts are made um, to preclude improper payments by creating systemic edits that prevent those kinds of claims from getting through. So whereas I think in, in a private um, payer setting, um, they take longer to process claims because they want to make sure that they pay, they're paying for something that's reasonable, um, um, including this pre-authorization process. And the, on the Medicare side, it really isn't um, a thing we do. And so we have to be very creative to try to prevent those problems in other ways. So I can tell you that from my exposure to private payers, it's a big problem for them. And it's obviously a, a huge resource sink to, to have to do that. Um, but for Medicare, it really, it, it's not really an issue. Yeah. As you establish policies, how do you keep providers abreast of the changes and the, the payer preferences that have evolved? Well, uh, the, the reality is that, that all of the policies that are written are living, breathing documents, and they need to reflect the evidence of the time when the decision was rendered. We rely on the published evidence to tell us that there's support for uh, the use of a service. And we look at basically three factors in that determination. One is that the test demonstrates analytical validity, two, that it demonstrates clinical validity, and three, that it demonstrates clinical utility. We can go into details as to what that means in specifics, but the evidence can change over time. So we can make a, a decision that is now no longer true because additional evidence has come out to show that the test that we're paying for actually doesn't improve clinical outcomes in patients and doesn't have clinical utility, or a, a test that we decided to not cover has now come out and demonstrated clinical utility um, and so now should be covered. There are formal processes that are in place to change policy. These, these are called reconsideration of current policies. And so there's an established formal way of, of changing our minds. And, and the, the key um, thing that will get us to change our mind is evidence. You've really helped us understand the challenges from the payer side that are presented with the growth of precision medicine. But as you look forward, what are some of the solutions or ways that we can address these challenges 
as precision medicine grows from a payer perspective? So thanks, Jerome, for that. I think um, I think a lot of the challenges that we're seeing are really a consequence of a paradigm shift in the practice of medicine. And honestly, a lot of this was going to be unavoidable. Um, and we're feeling the growing pains of, of a change in the way we do things. Um, I think that there's a lot that can be done to improve and smooth out the process. Um, I think I mentioned that the, the, the Z codes are a, a specified code set for lab developed tests. Uh, certainly would help a lot in, in the communication between provider and payer. There's certainly a lot of other things that could be done uh, to improve that. Uh, one is to also work more closely together on the CPT code set to make them better fit the payer needs. Um, I can give you lots of examples. For example, tier two codes uh, are a listing of, of individual genes or processes uh, that the payer really can't do anything with. Um, uh, then there's also the, uh, the the fact that there really, as you mentioned earlier, there's just not that many experts out there in the field. There's just this gap, and it, it's it, that's for a variety of reasons. One is it's a new field, and so there's few people that um, are are invested in this field and have expertise just because it's new. And only you know, I happen to be at the cutting edge in academia uh, before leaving and going into industry and then into the payer space. How many people were in the space with me? I mean. I probably know almost all of them um, um, just because it's such a new and small field. Uh, when I started going to, for example, the Association for Molecular Pathology, AMP uh, is the key uh, body really in this space. I remember going to AMP meetings um, as early as like 2009 and it was a pretty small meeting, you know, 500 people or so. And now it's three, 4,000. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is such everybody, not everybody, but, you know, medicine is recognized that this is really the future. Precision medicine is a future. And yet, why aren't there more people involved? Why is there more education? There's a lot of reasons. You know, one of them is, um, you know, we talked about a, the lack of, of subject matter expertise, but that's also tied to the fact that there wasn't, um, the payers weren't paying for these services. So if there's a service out there that the payer is not paying for, then who's going to be performing those services? Why would people go into molecular genetic pathology when there's no molecular pathology jobs to be had at the end of the rainbow? So now that, that, that these tests are becoming more accepted and they're being performed, and when they start to get reimbursed, that will open up more positions um, for hiring molecular genetic pathologists, and that in turn will... Um, push people to get subspecialization in molecular genetic pathology. And so I think it's, it's all of these things are working together. There's not one magic bullet that's going to make this work. It's a bunch of little things that need to fall into place. And unfortunately, it takes a lot of time. Um, having a, a, the payers understand the test and make good policy, that's one of those things. Having the uh, physicians get actionable reports is another. There's another thing we haven't talked at all about. So these are highly complex tests um, that are looking for very uh, uh, niche things. Uh, you know, looking at molecular genetics, which is you know the, the the driving force behind oncology. Cancer is a genetic disease, and yet how many oncologists are actually experts in genetics? Virtually none. Not, not that none of them are. Of course, there are some that are very brilliant uh, geneticists, 
But in general, the practice of oncology doesn't require or didn't in the past require expertise in genetics or genomics. And so what we have is right now we have this big gap in understanding. We have the laboratories that are becoming very proficient in creating test results, looking for specific genetic aberrations. And then you've got oncologists who are practicing medicine and wanting to identify the best um, therapeutic intervention for their patient. And somewhere in the middle is the interpretation of very complex genomic signatures uh, and turning that into a directive for the oncologist. Right now, nobody's doing a good job of filling that gap. The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this. With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which treatments are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit TrapelloHealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based treatment options when time matters most. So I could tell you when I was running my, um, my 650 gene panel in industry, the real driver of that business, the reason why we were successful was because we weren't putting out a report with a list of genes. We weren't putting out um, can text, only can text about uh, what the evidence shows about each gene. What was really valuable there was we were writing a consultation on every patient, reviewing the oncology notes for those patients, looking at the genetic signatures of those tumors, and telling the oncologist based on our expertise what they should think about doing, what their, what their, um, what their, uh, what their different choices were and what the benefit or what the rationale was for each potential therapeutic intervention that they may be considering. And, and that really helped the oncologist. And I could tell you with feedback that I got from my clients who were the oncologists, it helped them make better decisions. So the, the, what is the future of this field? Is it one where the oncologist is now also an expert in genetics and, genetics and genomics and can interpret the test results better? Is it that the laboratory understands the clinical implications better of all the resultant um, mutations that they identify? Or is it somewhere in between where there's a new specialty of molecular oncology that, that fills that gap? So I think that's what we have yet to figure out. And I think there's been challenges there as well. For example, next generation sequencing tests um, are considered part of the clinical lab fee schedule, meaning that they are laboratory tests. And yet there's a lot of professional um, expertise that has to go out um, in reviewing that evidence to make an actionable report for a physician. Basically, some experts got to look at all that data and, and, and turn that into a clinical report that has utility for the, the ordering physician. Um, and so that, that professional work is not well captured in the code set. Um, it's not well reimbursed 
when it is billed because the payers still quite haven't figured out how much of this is just a lab thing and how much of this is a professional work thing. Uh, so I think that's another another problem um, is, is really this, this knowledge gap. Who is going to take the, these raw data or these lists of mutations and convert them into a report that informs the oncologists uh, on what they should do and why they should do that? I went off on a tangent on that, I know, but that, I think that's another important point. No, that was fantastic. Everything you said was 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 exactly what we are looking for and what we could use. One last question before I ask social media. Do you see this, the demand for clinical genomics going into other disease states that you guys are going to have to look at developing policy in the future? Yes, absolutely. Uh, cancer isn't the only genetic disease or the only genetic disease that could benefit from a, a, a better understanding of the genetic implications or drivers of disease. We're seeing it in all um, host of other, we're writing policies, not just in cancer. There's a reason why cancer is first, why cancer is the best studied of these. And that's because cancer patients don't have good therapeutic interventions. I mean, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of money in developing a lot of cancer therapeutics, but in general, cancer patients still die of their disease. And so, um, you know, if you're an oncologist, you, you may not like that statement and say, hey, look, we've, we're a lot better in this particular disease than we were 50 years ago. Forget the, the, the precision medicine field. Let's, let's talk a little bit before that, because I would say that, you know, when we get into precision medicine and targeted therapies, we are all speaking the same language. But um, but it's not but it's but the reason why it's moved faster in oncology is because those patients are really really sick and mm -hmm. could benefit from anything that could improve their their condition. Um, other other diseases are going to lag behind because there's less urgency on doing so. I, is my opinion. Um, but it doesn't mean that that it's not just as relevant. And so we're we're already seeing uh, movement in these tests and a host of other fields. Um, another obvious one is infectious disease, but also in, in transplant services, we have policies there. Um, in, um, in immunology, we're seeing um, a lot of this. In, in endocrinology, we're seeing this. Uh, cardiology, we're seeing this. So it's going to probably spread out to, um, to probably many, if not most, um, other specialty areas uh, with with you know, different degrees of penetration of, of how important or relevant it is to managing those patients and their care. <coughs> I would also, are, you know, say things that may be general to the entire population would be things like pharmacogenomics, where we can understand, forget about the disease uh, that's the, the issue, it's which specific drugs may be considered for those patients, which may be yeah. completely independent of the, of the, um, the diseases that the patients have where there's known metabolic um, issues that patients may either not benefit from a drug or have adverse events related to those drugs based solely um, and risk that's based solely on, on uh, a genetic signature. Dr. Gabriel Bien Wilner, Chief Medical Officer at Palmetto GPA and the Director of the MoldyX program. Before we let you go, for those that follow you or want to get in contact on social media for speaking opportunities, how can they connect with you? Thanks, Jerome. So I do have a LinkedIn account. 
Um, so you can look me up there. Um, I don't know what the handle is for that. Just look up my name. You'll see it. Uh, I do have a Twitter account uh, and a Twitter handle, although I don't use it as much. But it's uh, I think it's just GB Wilner at and then uh, a string of text, which is BWPG Precision Med dot com. And that actually that reflects my the, the company that I own. And you can also get in touch on the homepage at precisionmedicinepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.